Today, we're talking to Eric from Azul, all about Java and the art of product management. You're listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Now, have you been hosting a podcast for a while? I know you, you said you did one with Java, right? Yeah, so some friends of mine and I, um, we just kind of started one during the pandemic because that's what a couple of us did. So we hosted a couple of them. They're Java focused. So what we do is we kind of pick a general topic that we want to talk about. We get a couple people who know that topic uh, pretty well. And we try to get most of them to be in Java, but one of them to be outside of Java so that we get that outside perspective. And then the intro, like you don't want people to give, you know, a two minute bio of themselves, but it's like, who are you? You know, what's your kind of key qualification and why does it pertain to this topic? I'm going to, I'm going to ask you that question. Who are you? (laughs) What's your key qualification and how does it pertain to talking about Java? Sure. I'm Eric. I've been doing application security for actually over a decade now. And, you know, whereas a lot of people deal with, you know, the CISO of managing an organization, like my focus is specifically on how to attack Java systems. So I got my start in, um, you know, I did a lot of development. So I wrote uh, applications and then I just knew how to break into them. I knew because of all the corners that I would cut during development, I knew like I would probably build a system like this. So I went into security. Security consulting, did some static code analysis to find security vulnerabilities. And if you remember back like 2013-ish, um, there were a lot of flaws in Java itself. And so sitting out in California in the Bay Area, I just thought to myself, boy, if uh, you know, if I know security like I think I do, I can go deal with it in the Java platform. So that was the time I went and I joined Oracle and helped secure Java 8. So it went from kind of, I don't want to say it was the laughing stock of the industry, but it was just not a great thing at that time period because security was important. And you know, since leaving them, I've done just a lot of security with different applications, talking with people who need to secure their applications. And it all runs on Java. And now I'm working on Azul, who produces a JVM itself. Yeah. And so the main purpose of Azul, how do you explain that? Yeah. So over time, there's a lot of different versions of Java. Like there's a Java 7, there's a Java 8, there's a Java 9, and they really like to count. So they just kind of go up and up. Um, There's a new one about every six months. And for a lot of companies, it's really difficult to make that migration to go from like 8 to 9 to 10 to 11, all the way up to 19. So they want to keep their applications on the older versions. And they also need them to run really fast because the fast stuff tends to go on the newer things because the newer things are more fun to work on. So what Azul does is we provide a a JVM that's really fast. And also we provide security updates to those older JVMs that everybody has. That's pretty cool. And were you part of like the founding team or did you come in later? No, I wasn't part of the founding team. The company's been around for about 20 years or so, so I wasn't really eligible to be around for the founding team. Um, But just it's a lot of people that I've known throughout the years. They're pretty active in the Java world. um, So I've just like run into them uh, over the years. Now, most of the security people I've interviewed, they were arrested by the FBI or have some sort of grandiose story about their security exploits when they were younger. Have you ever been arrested by the FBI? 
Uh, no, I have never been arrested by the FBI. Um, yeah, the usual way that you run it is everybody who's kind of good at security and knows how to manage things has some kind of past of stuff that they've done. So I do work with a number of people who have been, you know, they've had guns pointed at them or things, or they've been, you know, severely questioned at a time. I haven't gotten to that level. So maybe I'm just good. There you go. Let's say that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I got this book at Barnes and Noble when I, I was probably 11 or 12, and it was called Hack This Site or something like that. And it sort of was an introduction and, and yeah. to, into hacking. And they, there was a website you could go try it on and all of this stuff. And, and so I got into it. And then I one day I was like, okay, I'm going to try to hack my computer downstairs, like get into my computer yep. downstairs through AIM. I have sisters there on AOL Instant Messenger. I was like, I'm going to try this. And I couldn't get it. And then I figured out how to do it. <laughs> I put both computers next to each other and I was like, how do I do this? And that taught me a lot, right? Because I was just brute yep. forcing. I wasn't like extremely educated or anything. And then I got a little bit more advanced and, and just picked up more and more and more things. And you sort of I think the terms like script kitty, right? You like start yep. just using other people's scripts and other people's exploits and start to understand this. And then I took a large break from it and I just found that I could go on script lance and write people code for their projects and I could make money and that was just an easier path for me, you know? And from there I did that for like a decade and then I found out after getting good at writing software for all those years that that's actually a, a very important part of being a, a good security person. Yeah, there's all kinds of ways to to break into things. So like the easy one, you know, I can't maintain a knowledge of exploits of how to attack everything. So like you go get the the scripts of, you know, what are the example payloads that you would use to break into a certain system. And then, you know, when you know how to write the software, you can customize them should you need to. But in terms of like the ability to monetize that as a career, it's way better to be on the the blue team or the defenders because ultimately no matter how good you are, at some point, all those guys get caught and then bad things happen. And then they make movies about them and they don't get royalties either. <laughs> no, they don't. Although the guy who was the star of uh, Catch Me If You Can, you know, the one that had Tom Hanks, he goes around to various conferences and just gives talks about what he did. And he's really interesting. Yeah, I enjoy that movie. And at the end, they'll actually like show you the person and they tell you where he currently lives and all of it, like the city. Yep. And I didn't know that that's news to me that he's going around to conferences, though. So he talks about it then. Yeah. Um, now he's been, you know, he's been out of prison. He's kind of a reformed guy. Um, so he just goes around and he does consulting and he helps people on using the knowledge of how he broke into a lot of things. And as you'd expect from the movie, he's extremely intelligent. So, um, you know, he just shares that knowledge with everybody and, you know, done correct. There's a market for that. And then for you, is your day to day just hacking into systems and finding exploits or what does that look like? No, so I'm not the guy who goes and breaks into the individual computers. Like, I don't need to find the exploits or do all the research. Those are generally security researchers and, you know, companies uh, like Azul or the various security vendors, they tend to have teams of them. Uh, my responsibility, I'm product manager, so I manage things, which is I just look at the market and I say, what are the problems? How are people breaking into these systems? And then because we make a JVM, I evaluate, you know, what are the ways that a JVM would need to defend against these types of attacks. So your official title is a product manager? 
Yeah, the official title that I have is Senior Director of Product Management, which is just I have a really good understanding of uh, what the market wants, how people need to secure their applications, and then how those applications are attacked. When you think about the whole art, there's there's books, there's resources, there's courses, there's a lot of information out there about product managers. Yep. How do you describe that role and how to be good at it? Yeah, so actually I was just talking to a, a friend the other day who, you know, she's looking for what her next step in a career is going to be because she's done um, like some marketing kind of developer relations work for a long time. And she says, I want to do something else that builds off this skill. So I was just saying, you know, I do product management and here's what it is. And there's almost too much information with everything now. Like there's books about everything. There's all kinds of videos. Everybody wants to sell you a course. But for me, I just use a chart. It's one image. It's called the Pragmatic Marketing Framework. And it just lists out all the activities that product managers can do. And basically, you take this chart and you pick about three things per quarter that you need to do really well at, because otherwise you're doing too much. And, you know, step one on the top left is this concept of what's the market problem that you're solving? And then down on the bottom right is how do you help people understand that you solve this problem? And then in between there, there's the whole concept of how do you decide what to build, who's the persona that it's for, and just how do you evaluate the requirements. Which one is it? Is it one of these? The pragmatic marketing framework. Is is that any of these right here? Or, it's or no? all of them. Oh, okay. Got it. Okay. You said you pick three of these things per quarter to focus on? Yeah, so you you can only do so much in a given time. So step one is always, do I understand the market problem that I'm that I'm solving? In my case, I'm focused on helping people secure applications that they run on top of Java. So that's kind of the reason that we do anything else. And then if you look over some of these, there's um, distinctive competency there. That's one of the ones that I like to pay attention to because it covers the question of not what are you good at, but how are you different than other people that are good? Like both you and I are very good English speakers, but that doesn't really set us apart from a lot of other people in the world. But what you do better than anyone else is to manage a podcast that can cover complex technical information in a way that people want to hear it. So for you, that's a distinctive competency to modern CTO. Nice. Thank you for the compliment. All right, so if I'm looking at this, because I don't have formal training as a product manager, I've built a lot of products, right? I've spent like 17 years doing it. And of course, over the past 17 years, so many new frameworks have come out and, and you know new tactics. And like you said, there's always a new conference with a new speaker and some new way of doing things. I found really quickly to what you were saying earlier is that the closer you are to the customer, and the problem and then the solution to it. And the more directly you achieve the solution and make it easy for the customer, that's sort of like a, like a catch-all if you do those things really well. But when we're talking here, it looks like it goes into sort of marketing, like beyond just making sure that the product matches the customer's needs successfully. This looks like it goes into to marketing. Yeah. So the aim is once you build a product or once you've done the engineering work, like you did it for 17 years, you also had to show people that you solve this problem and they have to be able to perceive that you, that you solve it. Otherwise, 
there wasn't much benefit to actually solving it. So it's how do you get the information out there so that the other people, like the marketing teams, know what to do, the sales teams know what to sell. Because part of the aspect is without product management, there's a gap and everybody fills that gap with what they know how to do. So the marketing team will go out and say something, the engineers will go out and build something, and the sales will go out and sell something. And if you've ever had that situation where you worked on a a project or, you know, the engineers built something and people look and they say, that's not quite right. It doesn't solve this problem. Um, it's because there was no kind of glue between what the customer wanted and what the market uh, was willing to take and the requirements that got to the engineer. So a good product manager is constantly in line revising those things so that everybody has the same understanding. Okay, so if I'm posting a job posting, Right. And I'm hiring a product manager. Marketing responsibilities aren't far from that. Like they might at a startup handle the marketing and and the product management. You could get a hybrid like that, but ultimately the product management is kind of like a a hub and spoke model where they're the thing that unites the other teams. Like as an engineer, how often do you like talking to the marketing teams? Me personally? Right. As a general engineer, how often do engineers want to go out there and write marketing collateral? They almost never. Right. So it's the product management group that kind of bridges the understanding and is like the communication translator between all the different groups. I like it. Air traffic controlling between between all the groups. Right. Okay. That's so you you would go to marketing and you would say you would clearly articulate the problem and then they could write copy around it and figure out graphical assets around it and all that type of stuff. Yeah, I tend to do what I refer to as the lousy first version of a lot of decks, which gets the key message there and sets a story structure. And then some of the things that these guys can produce on marketing teams where they know how to like draw images and connect items together and just like tweak words a little bit. Their stuff is so much better. But now because we've worked together on the story and the polish, uh, you end up with something really nice. No, that sounds fun. Do you enjoy your job? I think it's a lot of fun. I get to work at a really deep technical level with uh, software runtimes that manage and let a software itself work. And then I get to go out there and communicate uh, to people to help them get the understanding. Um, and the reason that this is satisfying for me is that when I was just writing and building the code, I felt like I didn't understand why people wanted it or what it was supposed to do. So I like that communication aspect of like, hey, customer, uh, what problem does this actually solve for you? Yeah, that's incredibly important. And so you get to go speak at conferences and communicate about this regularly? Yeah, I do a number of conferences. I used to do significantly more of them when uh, all the conferences were live, but they kind of quelled down with the pandemic and now they're starting to kick up again. So I just do a lot of talks uh, around the way. Almost uh, all my talks are about Java security of some ways that it's changed and what the types of modern threats are. So I just go around and I, you know, I have this nice level of credibility because I do know the Java attacks. I can actually show how they're working, explain them at a technical level, but also talk with people about why that matters to the business if they lose access to all their data. And so being the product manager, does Azul have, are they constantly building new products or do they have like one flagship thing? Like how does that work? Are you, are you maintenancing and growing existing product lines or are you starting like brand new product lines too? 
Yeah, so the Azul Vulnerability Detection is a new product that expands the overall market for a lot of people who run Java applications and need to make sure they're secure. Otherwise, it had kind of two main products, both of which were Java distributions that you could run and you would use them to run your applications. And the thing that people use them for is just because they were extremely fast. So it had the pauseless garbage collector. If you've ever heard, um, there's an old Java joke, um, knock, knock. Who's there? <laughs> so as you say, who's there? What you do is you pause and you drone on and you just kind of wait a little bit and you get it to the point that the other person is really frustrated waiting for the punchline. And then you say, Java. <laughs> <laughs> okay. right? Because the joke is it's the thing that always took a long time to start up or it would go there and it would operate and then it would have a stop the world garbage collection. So the, the role of that knock knock joke is that somebody gets frustrated because they're waiting and then all of a sudden Java starts. I got it. I like it. I've been a part of one Java project. Early 2000s, we were doing real estate software and it was really difficult for uh, the agents when they had out-of-state buyers and things of that nature. The only tools at the time were like go-to meetings that required large software installations and like complex things. It's hard to get grandma to do that. Like You just want to send her a link right? Today it's ubiquitous, right? We're doing it right now on Riverside. Yeah, you open everything in the browser. Yeah, so we built a screen sharing Java application. Now, for the executives listening, VPs of engineering, managers of, of developers or engineers, what's the business case for this? How am I saying we should look into this. Azul might be something we need. Yeah, so the reason that uh, anyone would take a look at Azul is, generally speaking, if you want your application to run really fast, but you don't always want to keep a cadence with um, taking every single new Java update and changing your core underlying platform uh, every six months. By Azul, you have a fully compatible JVM that you can use and run your application. Um, and on the vulnerability detection side, a lot of people I know, they have, they're being forced to run these things are called composition analyzers. They look over your software and then they flag every single thing under the sun as wrong. Everything is a risk. So what we're doing with um, the vulnerability detection is picking out um, what part of the code that you actually use versus just the code that's there. And then we're driving the attention to what is actually in use and is vulnerable. Okay, so you being Java experts actually is one of those distinctive competitive advantages that you have over the static code analysis engines that will support 50 languages. Yeah, they they go very wide and you get a lot of these tools that like they cover so many things that they do virtually none of them well. When you have an analyzer that does too many things, a lot of these security tools, they just like to report everything and, you know, raise the alarm all the time. Where a couple of years ago, I was giving a presentation at a conference and I like to have my uh, talks be a little fun. I like to have some, some sings and songs in there. So I did a, a song called Old McDonald Risk Management because they go, here a risk, there a risk, everywhere a tisk tisk. <laughs> I hope we can put some music to that. I think we'll I think, see what we can do. We'll yeah. get a, a production studio, have an old McDonald. But it's the point of all these guys. They walk around and they say every single thing is a risk. And a lot of these old school security guys, they just wag their finger at everybody, telling them that the thing you did could possibly be wrong. Yeah. Well, that's what nobody getting, wants to hear that. Yeah. That's what they're getting paid for, though. Right. Somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't know how to describe it, though. I actually don't have words for it. 
And luckily that's becoming less popular though. They, they are becoming less popular. So I go around and I try to change my jokes on my material every once in a while. Um, another one that I did is I think it was at like a, a sneak conference. I gave a talk on the security groundhog, which is like groundhog day. The security guy who shows up too late, he pops his head into your project. He sees a vulnerability and then says you have six more weeks of development. <laughs> I like that. There's a groundhog living under my shipping container about 15 feet from the studio. Okay. Yeah. I've recently started learning about groundhogs. We have an American groundhog on the property. So I don't actually know that much about groundhogs, but sometimes when I make the jokes about things, people think that I happen to know a lot about the topic. And I'm like, oh, I only know enough to make a punchline. There you go. That's all you need to know, though, right? And I, by the way, thank you for doing that because technical conferences, when there's good speakers who make it fun and interesting, it's often rare and it's greatly appreciated. Yeah, I mean, I try to do what I can. I try to be as uh, as mobile as possible, like move around the stage. Don't just stand behind a podium, um, like zip around, make as many jokes as I can and not just have like a, a meme picture up there. I still do have the memes, but you got to have some good delivery, too. Yes, the memes are absolute requirement. Now, I want to go back and talk a little bit more about the pressure that technology leaders might be experiencing to, to think that, hey, maybe... So like the first qualifiers, they would know that they have Java in their stack, right? Sometimes they do, but sometimes it's just, it's prevalent in so many different systems. Like it's been around in 26 years and I've talked to people and they say, we don't use Java. And then you look at the system and it turns out they do. Oh, Okay. Like it was in a lot of people's desk phones for years. Like I forget the model of it, but you know that phone that like every professional had at their desk for years? Mm -hmm. Java was on there. What was it like the SIP protocol or something? They were incredibly difficult to program. I just remember that there was always that phone at every desk. Yes. So then what's the symptom? So I think you said one of the symptoms is applications running slow, right? So if I'm hearing that constantly, getting that feedback, I may want to look into Azul. Yeah, if you just need to increase the the compute capacity without adding additional resources, like in the cloud world, you can always just go and buy more. But the problem is that gets expensive. And in the on-premises world, like you can only resize up in VMware so many times. So what you want to do instead is make sure that you're actually maximizing what you have before you go out and buy more. There was a blog post that I read by David Hyman Hansen, like the creator of Rails. And yep. it was recent, like this week, and he was talking about their new product, Hey, and, and that they're looking to actively move away from cloud computing and move to on-premise. And he listed off a bunch of reasons. I didn't understand it necessarily because I'm not an expert over there. So I made some comments on the post, and then people told me more facts that really I didn't understand. Cost-benefit analysis do you see a lot of your customers running on-prem things? Do you think we're moving back to on-prem just from the exposure you're getting from our customers? I know you're not necessarily like a cloud hardware or you know vendor type person, but do you see more people going towards on-prem or towards cloud or what direction do you see people headed? Yeah, it's a bit of both. So Azul has a JVM that makes uh, cloud workloads operate in a denser capacity, but also works on-premise. Personally, I'm seeing a lot of migrations in both directions. Like if you need to get things up and do it really quickly, you know, the whole point of the cloud is that you can just spin up resources and get whatever you want. But for the organizations that like 
like have a large estate, like a bank, an insurance company, for them, moving a lot of their workloads to the cloud is really, really expensive. A couple years ago, I was working on some other products and we were helping organizations move to cloud. And I saw one company that had a mandate. They wanted to move about 300 systems to the cloud and they moved like four of them and maxed out their entire budget for the year. Wow. So for those people, I don't think it makes sense to go. So why aren't these people, I can't remember the name of it. There's this awesome guy in Atlanta. I've met with him several times. I've been on his show, but they're the largest footprint of server space in the United States by square feet, right? And so they build these massive buildings with racks and everything like that. And then they ultimately, their customers are often like the big five, right? So they're, you know, Facebook doesn't even necessarily own all of its data centers, right? But the point is, these big five, they don't necessarily own every data center for everything that they're doing. So if you're a big enough company, you could go like rent from these massive providers, right? Yeah, I think that was like Equinix or somebody. It might be them. I remember the job I started first out of college, uh, we would have to go to the data center every once in a while because we just had a rack there. And like I had to get scanned. They had to have my badge on file. I had to do a handprint and stuff to get in. So you can go and use those. I think the, the problem is that then you manage the infrastructure. So one of the benefits of the public cloud is that I just I don't have to think about as much. Dave McCall, I, I looked him up real quick. QTS data centers. Oh, okay. He's got a great podcast too. I want to talk a little bit about what I saw in the the prep for this, which is, I think Josh named it, really cool Java things. There's a couple of really cool ways that you've seen Java used or you've used it. One, a water-powered ocean glider. Can you tell me about that? Oh, yeah. So there, you know, Java's been around a long time and it's inside all types of uh, embedded systems as well as a lot of cloud and like enterprise workloads. And like, well, for the majority of people who uh, work, that's what we do. We build enterprise systems and uh, operate things. I personally think the embedded stuff is really cool. So I pay attention to it. So the guy who created Java, James Gosling, actually used to work at a company called Liquid Robotics that built a, it's basically a water-powered robot that navigates through the ocean and is powered by the motion of the waves and solar work. And it just like navigates around and reports back all kinds of data about sensors. And the cool thing was we did a podcast um, talking with him and the uses for embedded Java. And he's explaining everything that goes on with these uh, water-powered Java wave gliders. And he says, yeah, and every once in a while, a shark will come up and just bash into them. And so it might bite off one of your sensors. Oh, man, that's a fun day. I know. I'm not going in the water to retrieve it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know where it is. And they go like they also have to go up near the North Pole, which is particularly cool because like compasses, you know, whereas you and I would look and say what direction is north. The reason that a compass points north is because there's a giant iron ore deposit up there. But when you get right up there, all of your compasses, they no longer work to show you where you are. So you just get really weird behaviors like that and stuff goes really off the rails which is one of the reasons that you need a structured language that's going to give you known behaviors versus like the more dynamic stuff where you you see what happens only when the software runs. 
How did you feel when you got to meet James Gosling? I thought it was cool. Like the, you know, when I talked to a friend of mine and I said, hey, we should do a podcast on Embedded. He said, yeah, we, do you know James? He likes to work on Embedded. And I thought, well, there's no way he's actually going to reach out to this. Like, this must be a joke. And then uh, later that day, I was introduced to him and I was like, wow, this, this is really cool. What a great opportunity. What got you on this path of being more than just individual contributor or manager? How did you get out there and start speaking at conferences and, and build these relationships? So mostly I just like to go around and kind of have fun with uh, what I'm doing. Like I want to have some kind of jokes, like the the songs that I do, the ability to present it and things. I kind of got a unique start in the industry because even before I started coding, I went to uh, Illinois State University, which is one of two colleges in the United States with a circus. So I actually used to uh, juggle and unicycle in the circus. So I always do some kind of uh, performing and things. And it's just a nice way of getting information out there in, in a way that's fun. So I'm just kind of always like, what can I do that's more fun to show off these cool tech things? What specifically caused you to get involved with the circus? It's just the, the high school that I went to had a juggling club. So I learned how to juggle and, you know, I knew how to do that. And then when I went to the college, they're like, we have a circus. So I went and joined the circus. That is so cool. Did you travel around or was it just a stationary? It was like a regional one. So you do things over in the center of Illinois. So we never went uh, very far, but it's just a nice opportunity. You'd like wear, you know, your typical circus costume. I was never a clown. And you just like go around and do these cool performances. That is pretty neat. Yeah, we lived in a very artistic town. Um, my wife and I are both from Sarasota, Florida, and they're known for the Ringling Brothers. Nice. Yeah, and... It's not exactly what you think about if you've only seen like a traveling circus. There's quite an art to it and there's very like a whole lot of different styles because often when you think of circus, you'll think of the scene from the movie that you saw of the circus. And that's like one very specific type of situation. And so to see like the elegant stuff that they'll do at night or like the high-end black tie type circus stuff, that is really, really interesting. And And you just did a spectrum of stuff, just whatever events were going on. Yeah, we just did um, different events. You know, there's a, a lot of circuses that do have animals, not as many anymore. But we used to get protesters every once in a while who would show up and they would say, circuses abuse animals. Now, first of all, we didn't have any. But the joke that the people who ran it used to say was, uh, we treat animals well. These are college students. <laughs> there you go. Now, so you got the unicycle, you got the juggling. So you've you've had this entertainer streak and you, communicator streak and you for your whole life? It's just a, a thing that I try to do. Yeah. So uh, when I first started like working in the, the tech group, my idea was, you know, how do I become a CTO? And I was under the impression that, well, they must be the best coders. They must be the most knowledgeable people. And the more I worked with them and the more I saw everything, I saw they're, they're not, they're always good, but they're not always the best at that. But they are really good at talking and communicating and telling the story about why they do something. Yeah. And then your dream to go to CTO sort of, it didn't matter. You just wanted to be doing the things that you loved, communicating and technology. In a sense, yeah. Like for a, for a point, it doesn't matter what people call you. It matters what you get to do. And as long as I get to do something that's, you know, both challenging and fun and also kind of moving the industry forward in a certain way, like I find that uh, very worthwhile. What advice are you giving to the 
level of engineers and technologists that are you know directly below you about how to grow in their career? Yeah, the main thing that I work with a lot of people on is the concept of picking what you do and doing that really, really well. Like a lot of people I know, they are pretty good generalists. And it's really nice to be a generalist. you got to have that ability to do a lot of different things. But when you pick one thing to work really, really well at, and there's a market for that, then people who are in the market for that particular skill will start to go to you as the expert because other people can't solve it. So like for me, I focus on Java security and people who need to know, you know, how do I secure my Java workloads? Um, they tend to find their way over to me um, versus people who just need general security. There, There's a lot to that. So for each person, like what do you want to be really, really good at? And so you coach them through this or you you have them go explore that and come back to you or Well they don't always have to come back to me it's just a matter of like picking the picking the problem that they want to work at okay. and making sure that they have the capability of staying focused in that and not just doing it um but also being able to communicate why they do it I agree with that because I've lived that advice out I had heard it from a number of people, but the one that stuck in my head was Gary V. Gary Vaynerchuk. He's like a marketing personality online. And he talks about doubling down on what you're great at. That's like his phrase that he uses, right? Oh, okay. And so we're just constantly trying to reinvent at the core without going off into something else, right? I'm not trying to become a real estate yeah. podcast or, or whatnot. How do you do that professionally or how have you done that to keep it fresh for yourself yeah, so I don't know specifically how I've done that, but I just like to focus on, you know, how can I take this complex topic of security where a lot of people, you know, want to drone out, they don't really want to hear about it, they're kind of forced to come to the the class, and how do I make those things entertaining? Because for me, it's just about having fun with the work I get to do and, you know, going out there and solving a problem. Okay, you're making life better for people that have to go to this educational event on Java. Right. You have to secure your applications. Nobody really wants to do extra work. So if they have to learn something, let's make the thing that they have to learn fun. Let's make the thing that they have to do something that they just get done as a result of what they normally do. Have you ever participated in the No Fluff, Just Stuff conferences? No, I've never participated in them, but I know a number of people who do. Yeah, I got to go to one of those. It was like right before the pandemic happened. But wow, I had been to so many conferences. And then when I went to one of those, it was just people, the way you're describing you know, yourself, and, and it was a bunch of those people consolidated. And they were just practitioners who could pull up you know, the computer and, and live code and whatnot and talk deep with you, but they could go yeah. very deep but they keep it super interesting up high. And so that that's an art. And I think that that conference circuit has a lot of those. I hope they're doing it again. I hope they're back operating again. Yeah, I, I know a number of people who go through that. So I think it, it, it is still going on. Also, I get a bunch of their emails. But yeah, they, they really go in there and do the you know, live coding. I like listening to people who do live coding, but sometimes I think it's hard to watch because I don't know which part of the screen to focus on all the time. Yeah, Man, it's strange for me having done it for so many years and then for the past like two and a half, three years because of the podcast. It's just, it was something that was in my daily life virtually and then it's just not there anymore. I kind of miss it. I've, I've been thinking about when my kids are older, my oldest is only five, 
that I would get into a tinkering mindset, buy the Adrenos, get the little projects off of Amazon you can buy and sort of show them, you know, basic circuits and how to write like a basic piece of software. So I'm looking forward to that stage of my life, but I'm in this weird gap break point right now. Oh, there's a cool thing that you can get and it's on Amazon. It's called Snap Circuits. I've used that with my kid who's eight years old now. He just had his birthday. And what it is, is every circuit or wire is just on a, like a fixed interval item and you just snap them together like you would a button on a shirt. And because there are a bunch of components, you can like snap onto the battery, snap onto the LED and snap onto the resistor. And it's a really easy way for them to see some of this stuff and just build a little entertaining things. You know, you can't do a ton, but it's way easier. Like a seven-year-old with a breadboard, that's tough. Yeah. Yeah. You can teach them about basic electron flow and whatnot. This is great. Hey, real quick, before we wrap up here, what are other areas of your like interest so I can put you down on our sheet for future conversations that are unrelated to Java and like sometimes we'll have things come up like robotics or and then we'll we'll bring someone on we just kind of like banter about you know Elon yeah. Musk new robotics thing or whatnot yeah, so I've got my little like tinkering lab there. I think this stuff is super fun. This like propane thing where you just build little sensors and things because you just get to tinker with things. And like for years, everybody has run like, oh, I got to have my app up in the cloud. But what gets the data to the cloud? Like everybody works on these things and I'm going to make this business process more efficient. But there's very little software that actually interacts with the real world. It's all somebody clicking there and typing and doing something, but like what's producing all of those sensors and things and what's kind of giving us that real-time visibility. And it's only like these little IoT projects where you can have a sensor that does it. Also, like the reason that I got on this propane sensor thing is I'm interested in home efficiency. So like your house, your house is basically an unmanaged business. Like you got to manage. It is. You know what I'm talking about because yeah. you you got a house there, right? Like, okay, I got to manage a lawn contractor. Those are the guys that do it. You know, you got a propane tank. I got to manage a propane contract. Okay, I also need to service the boiler and the gas company and the boiler company are different firms. Oh, now I need a roofer. Who do I talk to? So I just started gathering like all of this stuff. And I'm like, how can I automate this stuff and kind of offload the cognitive complexity? We should do an episode with me, you and Bill Nye to talk about home energy efficiency we could talk about I've different- actually met Bill Nye. You have? Yeah. So we opened for him once in the circus. He was coming there to talk to a lot of people and he needed an opening act. So he got us to go out there and perform to entertain everybody. There you go. I was just thinking the other day to do something with Bill Nye. I've listened to his interviews, right? And I've listened to his books and he's really into energy efficiency residentially. I don't know if you've read his books recently, but no, I, I haven't run into the the stuff. I don't follow him. I know like I, I know his stuff and he's a really interesting, really smart person, but obviously I've never talked to him about, you know, energy efficiency or anything like that. Yeah. Let's do that. All right. Well this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.